You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. So we are continuing our series. We are the church, and what we're doing is we are looking at the early church, and we're saying, what was told to the early church? What did Paul tell the churches in Colossae? What did Paul tell the churches in Philippi? What did James say to the early churches? What did Peter write? What did Jesus say? Right in the book of Revelation, we might get into, which everybody loves learning about the book of Revelation. Uh, but every, like, what, what were they learning? What were they needing to be told? And then how can we apply it to our life today? Because it is applicable, right? It is just as much needed in this church thousands of years later as it was in the early church when it first started. And so we went through Galatians, we went through Colossians, now we're in the book of Philippians. We're starting our journey through. And so important context before we begin, because this kind of helps you understand what was going on, who wrote it. And so we know that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And we know that Paul actually founded this church uh, because in Acts chapter 16, there's a story of Paul going and he's headed to this area. He first gets this Macedonian vision, this call. So he gets woken up and it's a dream. And somebody's telling him, hey, Paul, come over here and preach the gospel. And so Paul goes and he comes to this area and he preaches. And the first convert was this lady named Lydia, who was a very successful businesswoman. And then as they're going and they're preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi, which was named after Alexander the Great father, King Philip. And so this was a very Roman, strong, you know, prominent town. Like this was, this was not just any small town or like, you know, like in Colossae, but this was a very important city. A lot of, you know, people would retire. Like this was a very, very important city. So Paul's going, he's preaching, and then he gets arrested. And so he goes, and, and some of you might know the story of the Philippian jailer, where he goes, and it's him and Barnabas, and they're arrested. And at midnight, they were singing psalms, and they were praying, and they were singing at midnight, even though they were in jail and arrested, didn't know if they were going to lose their life. And yet, an earthquake happens, and all the cells open, all the, the doors open, and then the jailer knows that if anybody escapes his life would be done. So he's about to commit suicide. And then Paul tells him, hey, don't kill yourself. Hey, stop. What are you doing? We are all here. And so this church was started with such strength. I mean, this was this was like a, a crazy story, right? Not only was Lydia the first, right? Because women weren't as important as men back in the day. But then on secondly, then it started. So, so this could be lit, like when, when they were reading this letter to the, to the people in Philippi that Paul wrote, the jailer could have been sitting there. The girl that was healed of the demons that were in her, in her that why Paul and Silas, I mean, Paul and uh, Barnabas, or not Silas, were arrested, right? She could have been sitting listening to this letter, and then Lydia was there too. It could have been in her house. Like this was, this was what was going on in this time. And so we also know that Paul was actually, it was Barnabas, but Paul was in prison at this time when he wrote this letter. So he was in Rome, and he was in chains, and he was not, as I always tell you, right, not in an air-conditioned prison. Like, this was a disgusting place, and yet, as we'll see, Paul is trying to show them that despite their circumstances, they can have joy, and so today, if you're taking notes, today's, the title of today's sermon is Where's Your Joy, right? Not did you lose it, but where, where is 
Where's your joy founded? What's the foundation? What's the source of your joy? Because there's a difference between, I didn't say happiness, right? Because happiness is fleeting, right? You can be very happy one moment, right? Let's say, just say in a sports game, right? You're very happy, your team's going, then all of a sudden, boom, something happens, and then you become angry, and you break your TV, or you, you know, you just lose it, right? Because it was, it was a fleeting emotion, and yet, but there is this joy that Paul has that I want for you, that I hope you have. And if you don't, after today that you do get this joy, because it's for every believer, but it's this joy that allows you to be steady despite any circumstances. That you're not being tossed to and fro, that you're not losing your mind, that you're not going through this roller coaster of emotions, but yet despite what's in front of you, despite whatever is the news, whatever the diagnosis, whatever the bank account looks like, whatever your job just told you, whatever the, the deadline's coming up, that there is available to you a steady, quiet joy waiting every moment of any day. And this is what I believe Paul was, as we'll talk about later, was, was thinking about, was being reminded as he wrote this letter. So, question for today, where have you placed your joy? Do you have joy? And are you able to be steady? Have you been steady in your walk with the Lord? Have you been steady in your emotions? Have you been steady in, in filling the blank with whatever has been coming your way? Or have you felt like you have just been thrown to the wall every single time and you have no clue what's going on? So let's read starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, verses 3 through 5. It says this, I thank my, we'll start in verse 1. It's not there. I apologize, but y'all can follow along. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Some translations say slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're just going to read the whole passage and we'll come back. And he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for that day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Like, man, if I was reading this, and I, and you know, they were under the rule of Rome, and nobody wanted to be under the rule of Rome. Nobody wanted to be, you know, in submission to them. And yet they're reading this, and they hear that Paul, who founded this church, Paul, who is in prison, and yet he's able to say these words, right? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. He, when he prayed for them, there was joy in his prayers. And so if we 
if we look to verses 3 and 4, we could see that there was this proof of a particular and special affection that Paul had for this church, right? This wasn't, this was, though Paul loved all the churches, there was something here that made Paul write these words, right? That there were so many churches, so many things demanding his prayers and, and so many things going on, but yet he never forgot them, right? He says, or the person or object that we remember in every prayer must be very dear to our heart, right? If Paul was to say, hey, every prayer of mine, every prayer I remember you, I'm thinking of you, I'm bringing you before the Lord, like the church was very dear to him. And so, so what we'll see is that there was something motivating Paul to be able to pray this way, and we'll figure out, and we'll see later what that was. And so if you were to look at your prayers, right, or our prayers, what we pray about the most or who we pray for shows where our affections lie, right? So, so for instance, if we are praying first, where obviously our affections are on Jesus because we're coming to him and we're saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, this is going on. Jesus, this, Jesus, that. And so our, our understanding, our confidence is first in Jesus and not in anything else. And so we see that there is something, right? We see that our affections first are on Jesus when we pray. But then, secondly, we are showing where our affections lie after Jesus. So in most of your prayers, is it your spouse, right, that makes up most of your prayer? Or is it your kids? Is it your, you know, is it family? Is it that the kingdom would move forward? Is that the Lord would pull you deeper into his relationship with him, right? Or on the flip side, is that maybe your prayers are, Lord, I need more money because I need to buy this and I want this. And, and instead of your prayers being, Lord, I thank you that you, will pr- that you are my provider. Instead, your prayers end up being, Lord, I need this, I want this, and can't you give this to me? And it's like God then becomes a means to an end. And your affections aren't on God, they are on this thing. And so you see, there is a major difference between saying, God, I trust you that you will provide And God, I really want more money so I can have this car, this look. Though we may not pray it exactly, our thoughts are always on those things. right? You may have never prayed, Lord, I need more money so I can have this. But deep down, right, is it that your money is meant for somebody else? Is your money meant so that you can be generous to those around you? Or is it because you need more stuff in your life because deep down Christ isn't enough? Because that's the question to wrestle with. Is Christ enough? Because if he's enough, then nothing compares. And most of the time, we don't have to buy things that are not eternal and are pointless because it's like, man, I could use this for somebody else. There's somebody else who could use this money. There's somebody who needs their rent paid. There's somebody who needs a meal. There's somebody who needs to just know that somebody sees them. So if Paul showed his affection in every prayer to pray for this church, how much more then can we look at Jesus' prayers and see who he prays for? So Hebrews 7, verse 25 says this. Consequently, he, talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we see here that Jesus' prayers right, always lives to be praying for us. Right? Jesus prayed for us before he went to the cross, and then now that he died and rose again, yet he is still praying for us, interceding for us 
every moment of our day. So in the moments that we feel like nobody is praying for us, nobody cares for you, nobody is thinking about you, yet Jesus, the creator of the world, the Lord, the Savior of your life, is there at the right hand of the Father praying, interceding for you. And so that should give us confidence to be able to have a steady joy despite whatever circumstances are around us. Or if we go to Romans 8, 34, it says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So once again, right, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, but we know Paul wrote Romans. And so there, there is this continuity. There is this, this same thought process between these writers that Jesus is there praying for. And so we see that even Jesus, his affections are on you and on me and on all his children because he's interceding for us. And how he's able to pray for us all, impossible for me to figure out. But yet the Bible tells us that he does and he intercedes for us. And even it's not listed here, but even in you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, when we don't know what to pray, prays on our behalf with groans that are, we don't know what he's saying. So Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, is constantly advocating for us. He's always praying for us. And this is why he's able to save us to the uttermost is because he is keeping us by his prayers, right? His intercession for us, his continual praying is why we can come confidently to the Father because Jesus is already praying for us. And so there's now no one to condemn us. There's no condemnation for us Christians. So now we can boldly come to the Father knowing that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he is praying on our behalf on a continual basis, which leads us to why Paul can say in verse 6 here in this passage, he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Like, man, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because on my worst days, when I'm not a good pastor, when I'm not a good husband, when I'm not a good father, when I feel like I haven't done enough for the Lord to be called a Christian to go and preach on a stage, yet I have confidence. Why? Because one, I know Jesus is interceding for me, and the Bible promises he's going to save me to the uttermost, but on top of that is that he who began this work in me, he who started my salvation, he who pulled me from death to life is now going to bring it to completion on that day of Christ Jesus. Like, this is such an encouraging verse when you feel like you're the worst Christian in the world. When you feel like you've messed up again. When you feel like you didn't measure up again. When you feel like you didn't, you missed the mark again. And so, who began this work of salvation in us? Obviously, this verse is saying about God, but let's look a little bit closer. In Acts 16, in the story of Paul going to the city of Philippi, it says this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
We go to Acts 11:18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life." And then we go to 1 Peter 1 verse 3. "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." So in these three passages, what do we see? One, God opens hearts. Two, we see God grants repentance to those hearing the gospel. And three, we see that God causes us to be born again. So we have confidence because how many times have you started something that you never got finished, right? Like name the workout thing in your house, name the DVD you bought, name the diet stuff that is in your fridge or whatever, right? Like how many times when we start something, we rarely finish these things, but yet God who when he starts something will see it to completion because that is God and he is steady and he is constant and he is faithful. And so we know God can do anything. In the, the story of the Israelites when they were in the desert, they were known to complain and, and they didn't really appreciate God's goodness to them. And so there was a story where they were wanting meat and they were saying, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. I wish we were back in slavery. And so because we had plenty to eat there. And so then they start whining and complaining and crying out to Moses. And then he says, okay, so Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord's like, okay, I'll give them meat to eat. And then he says, but I'm going to give them so much that they're not going to know what to do with it. And then Moses is like, but hold up, Lord. Like, how are you going to feed all these people? Like, even if we were to slaughter all of our livestock and get rid of every animal, we would barely have enough meat. And then this is what he says in Numbers 11, verse 23. I love it. I read it this week, and I was like, man, this is so good. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true for you or not. Different versions. And so God came through and fed the Israelites. And we know God's power and provision never run out, right? We know that if you look at the story of Israelites, though they were knuckleheads, yet the Lord always kept them and provided for them. Why? Because of his covenant that he made long before the Israelites were ever existent on this earth. So here's the question to ask yourself. If God started your salvation if God brought you from death to life, if God has given the Holy Spirit to you to live in you, to be the guarantee of your salvation, do you not think he can keep it all the way to the end? Because Paul, in prison, writing this, not much to be thankful for, not much to be happy about, not much because he's chained, he's in a disgusting prison, yet he writes letters to the church in Philippi, those whom he has heard about, those whom we see shared a gift with him, those who have tried to encourage him while he's in prison, that reminding them of who they serve. And I think this came from Paul reminding himself as well. Because every time that I write a sermon... Every time that I have a question that I challenge you with, this is all running through me multiple times before I ever bring it up to you. 
right? It's never, a, there's never anything that I will say on stage that either I haven't seen the Lord done faithfully in my life or he isn't doing in my life or he's already done in my life, right? It's like I know when I bring this to you that I know who God is, not because I've experienced everything in life, but because I know that his character hasn't changed. I know that what he said he would do, he did, because if you look back, right, if you look back in, um, in Genesis, right, because if you go back to Genesis, it says, we know in the beginning, God made a promise to Eve that her offspring will one day crush the head of the snake, right? So then we go and we follow the story. Then God used Noah to save the human race despite how wicked, you know, some of them, most of them were, right? Nobody, God could have started over, but yet because of his promise that he kept Eve, he kept Noah to keep his family alive to then be able to repopulate the earth. But then God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations, and though he was, should not have been able to have kids, and Sarah was not able to have kids, yet God came through once again, and he had a kid, named him Isaac, right? And then he had Isaac, and then he was able to then, Isaac was able to have Jacob and and Esau, and so then the story continues, right? The covenant continues. The promise continues. So then he gave Jacob, who was a liar, who was a absolute, not a good, good guy at all, but yet he gave him 12 sons. And one of those sons was named Joseph. And so then Joseph went through all of this awful stuff on earth so that he can be in position to then save his brothers who the covenant was coming through. And then the covenant was coming through the tribe of Judah. And Judah, if you go back to the story, was one of the worst brothers, did some shady stuff. So then it continues, right? And then God hears the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. And so they're in Egypt and they're suffering and he hears their cries. But really, it's the cries of reminding him of the covenant that he made long ago to Abraham, to Noah, all the way back to Eve. And so what does he do? He rescues them from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. And then he pulls them out and he takes them to the promised land. And in the midst of him wanting to destroy the Israelites because of their of their lack of faith, of their unbelief, he then keeps some of them alive despite their faithlessness. And then they make it to the promised land. And then from there, it gets this crazy time where there's all these wicked judges. And then, then comes Samuel. And Samuel then anoints David. And then David's this righteous king who then cheats on, on his wife, who then commits adultery, who then kills the guy who then does all this wicked stuff and yet God promises him hey your throne will last forever and it will ne- somebody will always be on the throne which was a indicator that the covenant was continuing and it would be one day Jesus so then he raised all these people and then right after then after David, God used Babylon to destroy Jerusalem to remind the people of Israel of their wickedness, but kept a remnant alive to go back and rebuild the temple. Then 400 years of silence. Now, I know you're like, why are you giving me a history lesson? Because I'm trying to prove to you who our God is. That when he starts something, he's going to see it finished. That when he promises you something, he's going to see it through. That you never have to doubt God no matter what is in front of you because there were 400 years of silence. Like, we can be frustrated with the Lord when there's a day of silence, when there's a week of silence, 
We haven't even been alive. America's not even 400 years old, and yet there was 400 years of silence between the last prophet, Malachi, who promised that there would be a guy, a prophet like Elijah, to come and make the way for the Lord. So 400 years goes by, and then there's a guy named John the Baptist, and he's born. It wasn't supposed to be born. Miraculous birth. And then he prepares the way for his cousin, Jesus, who comes on the scene, and then he lives the life that we can never live. And then here's the crazier part. Throughout the midst of all of the history of Israel, there were all these prophets and all these prophecies about Jesus. And so we see that Moses said that he would be the prophet to come, and he came. We see that he was supposed to live a sinless life, and he lived a sinless life. We know that he was supposed to open the eyes of the blind, the deaf, and those who couldn't walk. And he, raised, he did all of that when he was here on the earth. And then he brought good news to the poor. He was sold for money. It was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, and it came true. And then he was crucified. It was supposed to be crucified with sinners next to him. And what happened? At the cross, two sinners next to him were crucified with him. So there's all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled perfectly, all because God started in the garden that one day her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And no matter what the enemy did to try to nullify the promises of God, no matter what the enemy did, trying, to, trying to, to convince the human race that the things of this earth are far more satisfying than the things of God, yet he failed every single time because God, when he starts something, he sees it all the way to the end. And so this is what Paul is rejoicing in that he can look at the church in Philippi, that though they felt like they were under such scrutiny, that though Paul was in prison, that because he heard of the church in Philippi's love and, and, and pursuit of the gospel and the church was growing, that he can remind them that, man, and never forget church, never forget Lydia, never forget jailer, never forget girl whom the demons came out of you, never forget that the Lord who started the work in you, will see it into completion on that day of Christ Jesus. And so no matter what we go through, no matter our darkest moments, no matter our, our most difficult times, we can go back and rest and look at the history of the world and see God comes through. And so, how much more Will he come through and present you blameless on that day of Christ Jesus? How much more can he help you conquer temptation and the sinful desires in your life? Because he brought you from death to life. He gives you what you need, but you still, right, we still have a part to play. We are still responsible for our actions that though the Lord will keep us and though the Lord will continue to throw grace and his grace will abound, yet we still should have this desire to die to ourselves. Because the question is not so much like, because God's not going to make that choice for you, right? You have to choose daily to die to yourself. You have to choose daily to put your hope and your joy and let the goodness of God and let the, the history, the, the character of God be your source of why you can be steady no matter what circumstances are in front of you. And so here the question is this, why wouldn't you want to follow Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to trust this Jesus with your life? 
Why wouldn't you want to trust his word for your life and what he says is good for you? Why wouldn't you want to put your faith in Christ by which you can be saved today? Why wouldn't you see that he is far greater than anything that this world has to offer? Why won't you see that he is always going to come through in a way that you do not think he will, but he will come through because he knows he is God. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows the better way. And so we trust it because we have been here not even a sliver compared to how long he has been orchestrating our salvation and how many more years until he comes back why won't you trust that he will provide instead of you going into further debt why don't you see that your money is a gift from God and you are merely stewards of his money you see this is what Paul was finding joy in this is how Paul could sit in a disgusting prison cell and yet talk about the goodness and faithfulness of God Therefore, Paul wanted to pray for them, for they were displaying the work of God in their life. So let's go to verse 7 and 8. He says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, every believer in Philippi... Paul loved the same. He treasured every believer. Paul understands that he cannot reject someone that the Lord has accepted. Uh, there's a great uh, theologian says this is that uh, he says it is not enough to tolerate other Christians. You must enjoy their company. You must learn from them. Furthermore, this fellowship must be one that is constantly expanding to include other Christians, even those whom you have never met, but with whom you are forever united in the Lord. You see, when you become a Christian, you become united with Christ. And so if we, if every believer is united with Christ, then we are also united together in him, through him, by him. And so this should show in the way that we love those around us. Because Paul is saying that he is yearning to be with them with the love of Christ, by the love of Christ. And so how much more should that challenge us? So you must ask yourself, do I love those around me the way Christ would? Right? Do you love them the way Christ would? Or do you love them enough to kind of get by or get what you want from this person? Do I love those whom call themselves Christians the way Christ would? Do I enjoy other believers the way Paul, Peter, and Christ would? Like, are Christians your least favorite people to be around? Or are they the ones that you can't wait to be around? Because Paul, in the midst of prison, said, I yearn to be with you. Or this strong, deep, founded desire you see, Paul isn't writing that he misses the beach, that he misses the mountains, that he misses freedom, that he misses eating at his favorite place. Like he does, he's not saying any of that, but he's saying, I'm yearning to be with you believers in Philippi. And so in your walk with the Lord, do people desire to be around you? Like do people, when they're around you, does, do you in your pursuit and love of holiness fuel them in their desire for holiness as well, right? Or do people not want to be around you because they sense no love but all sort of judgment? 
all sort of everything but love. And you may hide it saying you love them, right? Like the old, good old Southern, oh, you know, like bless your, bless her heart, you know, like that thing, you know. But it's also like, oh, but I'm just, like you say something really mean, like, hey, like you got to stop doing that and I hate the way you did your hair, but I'm just speaking the truth and love, you know. Like, like they're, 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 it's obvious when there's really love and when there's no love at all and you're able to speak to people, right? There's a, there was a book called, it's like practical affirmation or something. But it talks about, you know, some people, right, let's say you're a manager or boss, and so, or your boss does this to you, right, where it's like the sandwich, like, hey, great job on that. Like, you did fantastic, but you missed it on this one. But I want to remind you, like, hey, you did a great job over here. Like, don't forget that, right? But instead, the question is, what if every time you talk to this person was nothing but just affirmation and encouragement? Hey, I saw that. It was great, man. And they just, like, wait for it, like, but what did I do wrong? Oh, nothing. You know, you're good. And then, the, and then, and then you do it again. They're like, okay, hold on. Like, what it, I did something wrong. Like, I know you know about that email. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, no, like, you're doing a great job. I appreciate you. But then if that is your normal, if your normal is encouragement, if your normal is to love them, if your normal is to love them the way that Christ loved you, then when you bring correction it has so much more weight to it. Why? Because they know you care about them. They know that you actually want to know how their heart is. And so when you speak, you don't have to sandwich it. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to make up something. But instead, you look for it because you are yearning to desire. You're desiring to love them the way that Paul, the way that Christ loved you. And so when you look at this, at this passage, it says, uh, what is, so it's this affection of Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? So if you look at the literal translation, it says like the viscera or the entrails, the intestines of Christ Jesus, some translation, which is weird. It's like when I read that, I was like, what do you mean intestines? Like that's, that's just weird. What does that mean to yearn with the intestines of Christ Jesus? And so in the Greek, the word viscera was more for like the noble organs. So it was like the heart, the lungs, the, you know, the liver. Like, and, but in back then, it meant the place where either anger or love or the deep, strong affections came from. And so when Paul says, hey, I love you with the affections of Christ, with the viscera of Christ, what he's saying is that he, sorry, threw my notes up. (laughs) What he's saying is that I hold you in the heart of Christ Jesus. Because we know elsewhere, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so when Paul says, I love you with the affections of Christ, he's saying, I yearn for you. I love you. I want to be with you the way that Christ has been with me despite my circumstances and in the way that I know he'll be with you. Because why? Verse 6, what he started, he will finish. Don't you know he is always faithful and good? And so is this what fuels you? Do you find it difficult to love those around you, to love strangers, to love those who wrong you? Then the question is, whose love are you using to love these people? Right? Like if you're saying, I can't love this person, you're right. You probably can't, but Christ can and has and does. And so the question is, are you loving out of a place, out of, a, out of the affections of Christ, or are you doing it out of your own love, your own strength? Because if it is your own, you will fail. But if you say, Lord, help me to love those around me the way you would, then you get his power. 
you are reminded of his love toward you, then you get to show the love of Christ to those around you. Why? Because you live as if it's Christ living in you, not you anymore, right? It's no longer you. You were alive, but then you died and were made alive in Christ. So now it is Christ who lives in you. So now your life is his in what you do. This is why in the beginning, right, in the very beginning of the letter, Paul and Timothy were introduced as slaves of Christ. Because it is no longer what Paul and Timothy ultimately want, but what their Lord and Master want. Because they understand that whom they serve is gracious and good and kind and gentle and not domineering, but he is constantly encouraging us. So when we get that conviction from the Holy Spirit, we know it's out of love. And it's not because God hates us. And so let's finish verses 9 through 11. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wanted them to abound in love more and more. He wanted them to love the way Christ loved them. He reminded them of how faithful God has been and will be to them to hopefully spur them to strive even more after the gospel and displaying it in their lives. He wanted them to do it with knowledge and discernment. He wanted them to be wise. He wanted them so they could approve what is excellent and show themselves pure and blameless for when Christ comes back. For their lives will be, fruit, will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. I've told you before, but I'll tell you again. You need Jesus to live like Jesus. You need Jesus to love like Jesus. You need Jesus to forgive like Jesus. You need Jesus to be able to endure the way Jesus did. You need Jesus for everything. Like when you come to the end of yourself, of your pride, of your willpower, of your ability to say, I can handle this on my own, and you finally come to the end and you say, Jesus, I need you, he always comes through. And he always gives you the strength and he always gives you exactly what you need when you need it. And lo and behold, you look back and you see that he was working on that situation all along before you even started praying for it. You see, after all this, these prayers, this life, this confidence, this love all lead to the glory of God. And so I want to remind you, church, that you can live a life that is sanctified. Because that's what this process is. From that moment that Jesus saves you and he started that work in you until he makes it to the end is sanctification. That's why sometimes I joke and I say, my kids are my sanctification. <laughs> but it's true. Like the Lord uses everything in your life, your marriage, right? Because you don't always agree. You don't always agree. You don't, you rub each other wrong. Like, like there is there is definitely tension, probably like even in this room right now, between y'all because there was something not dealt with, right? But yet, right, in, in the same way, he uses that because you're supposed to rely on him to love your spouse, right? Like he uses your work environment to sanctify you because you can't make it on your own. And eventually you're going to burn out unless you have the strength of Jesus. Like you can't forgive the one who's wronged you on your own power until... You go and you say, Jesus, help me to forgive them. And he reminds you of what you have been forgiven. And so you can forgive. 
You see, and that whole process is sanctification. And so you, through Jesus, can say no to temptation. You don't have to give in to your sinful desires anymore. You were cut off from those because of Jesus. But yet, when you give in to those temptations and you sin, you can find forgiveness in Jesus today. You can find something more. You can find someone more satisfying than whatever idol the sinful desires in you produce. And you can be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. But this only comes through Jesus. You must rely on His grace to do it. You must lean on the Spirit to guide you. And you must count all as loss compared to Christ Jesus. And then you can find joy in a steady confidence no matter what comes your way because you can go back to verse 6 and rest in that that he will finish it because he never never doesn't finish what he starts thanks for listening to today's sermon we hope this helps you on your journey to glorify god by enjoying him and making disciples who make disciples